Well, it's summertime, and everywhere you turn, it seems like somebody's getting married. Uh, marriage is one of those interesting things that requires adjustment that we have to make. I heard of one young couple who were about to get married, and each of them had a real concern about how things were going to go. The, the groom went to his dad and he said, Dad, I'm really, really worried about uh, certain things. He said, I've, I've got a horrible problem with foot odor. And I'm just afraid it's going to be really offensive, you know, after we're married. His dad said, well, look, just put on some clean socks when you go to bed. Wear those socks. In the morning, get up, go jump in the shower. Before she wakes up, it'll be fine. And the son was a little relieved at that. Meanwhile, the, the bride is talking to her mom, and she says, Mom, I've, I really, really am concerned about my morning breath. It's just awful, and I, I don't want to, to get our marriage started off, you know, offending my husband. Her mom said, oh, you, a lot of people have that. She said, listen, here's what you do. You, when you, when you first wake up, you run to the bathroom, and before you come back, brush your teeth, and everything will be great. She thought that'd be okay. And so each of them did that. And for the first several days, everything went well. Until one morning he woke up and realized he had lost one of his socks during the night. And he, he, he thought, I'll just real quietly crawl down in there and find it and put it on so she won't, un, you know, find out what's going on. And as he's, as he's down under the covers looking for it, she wakes up and bewildered, she throws back the covers and says, what on earth are you doing? And he looks at her and he says, oh, no, you swallowed my sock. <laughs> There's a lot of adjustments that have to be made in a marriage relationship. In fact, you could say that marriage is all about constantly learning to accept and to adjust. Carl Burkeen was a, a much-loved professor out at Abilene Christian University for years. And he would, he would often say to his ministry students, most of whom were male, he said, look, I can virtually promise you something about when you get married. He said, first, one of the very first arguments you're going to have is going to be about where you're going to spend the Christmas holidays. Second, you're going to go to her house. Merging two lives requires a lot of adjusting about things like holidays and other stuff. But there's probably nowhere where that's more significant than in, in matters of faith and church life. And we have one of our couples here at Greenville Oaks who have uh, agreed to share with us uh, part of their story about how that went for them. Look, watch the, this video because I asked him to go with me to our Sadie Hawkins dance second semester junior year. Well, that and it was God's plan all along. He said yes, and I was over the moon. I'll never forget telling my parents, there's this boy, and I'm asking him to the Sadie Hawkins dance. There was this long silence, and then my dad said, so, where does he go to church? Bum, bum, bum. Well, I hadn't gotten around to finding that out yet, but was sure he must go to church somewhere. Oh, yes, he did, to a very conservative Church of Christ. 
I grew up in a church that was an altogether different animal, an interesting mix between Baptist and Presbyterian, huge with a world-renowned pastor, fire and brimstone with lots of grace in between. We spent the next few years going back and forth to church with each other, more me with Scott than Scott with me, never on Sunday morning, mostly on Sunday and Wednesday nights. As our relationship progressed, we began to talk more and more about our faith, or what we thought was our faith. It's safe to say at that point that our faith was really more our parents' faith than our own. Our talks turned into arguments, throwing scripture at each other to prove our points to each other. It was awful. Our arguments mostly centered around the idea that I was not doing all I needed to do to get into heaven, that I, in fact, would never see heaven. Was I taking communion every week? Was I at church every time the doors were open? Was I singing with piano or organ accompaniment? What was my reason for being baptized? Was I going to a church that had an affiliation with a form of church government? My list of infractions was as long as my leg. As many scriptures as were shown to me, I tried to defend myself with more scripture, and many nights ended up in a yelling match with me driving home in tears. We were fighting over what God's word said and what we thought it meant, neither willing to give an inch. I mean, my faith for the longest time was my parents' faith. Yeah. It just really was. Yeah. And, it took, and it took me a long time to unlearn that and develop my own. I believe in the church that I went to that every Christian that, that I went to church with would tell you that no one enters heaven but by the grace of God. But that really wasn't the focus. Um, the focus was on doing everything right. It was on making sure that you had a prayer, three songs, uh, an invitation, and a closing song. Um, it really, I wasn't, I was never set down and told that, that that's how things were. That's just what I saw for years and years and years. Um, it took a very long time for me to unlearn the things that I had seen. And I can honestly say there was no particular point in time where I said, wow, it's not about the things I'm doing. It's about what God did for me. It's about grace. Um, intellectually, I knew that. I could give you that answer at the age of 10. I could tell you that, that it, wasn't, it was only by grace that we were going to get to heaven. But that wasn't how I was living. That wasn't what I had seen. So I thought, well, this just must be the way that they all think and the way that they all believe, that it has to be done this way or, you know, you're going to hell. I told you I listened in church. I think that those people were wholeheartedly convicted. I don't think any of that was out of malice or just trying to be nasty to me. It, that's not what our story is all about or what I'm trying to show by telling those things. It's just showing how convicted when you when you grow up a certain way and you see that all the time just how convicted you are that that is the right way without a doubt Scott and Sue Ellen are not alone in having that experience in struggling to to come together but it doesn't just happen in marriages it happens in church families too like Sue Ellen said in the video, when you've seen something one way all your life, when you grew up thinking that, it's really, really hard to keep from thinking that is the right way and the only right way. Now, that's nothing new. 
In fact, we're going to look at a place in the New Testament where that's exactly what was going on with a church family. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 15. We're going to spend some time in Acts 15 this morning and look at a a picture of grace that's a little bit different than the ones we've looked at before. This is a very clear example in the first century church of the struggle that Sue Ellen and Scott were having that they just described for us. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you a little background on Acts 15. You see, the, the church had gotten very interested in evangelism and going out and sharing the good news about Jesus with other people. And two of the most prolific missionaries they had were a couple of guys named Barnabas and Paul. And what Barnabas and Paul would do is they went all over the Mediterranean world at that time telling people about Jesus. What they would typically do, they would go into a city and most of those cities had a rather large, not large, but a significant Jewish population. Because remember when we studied the story how the Jews were scattered all over? Well, there would be a synagogue typically there and they would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and, and find these people and start talking to them about Jesus. And, and a number of these, these Jewish people in the various cities would become followers of Jesus too. And that was good. But then they started going to some cities that didn't have a real large Jewish population. It was they, Basically, there were no synagogues. They just had to go to the marketplace or to some place and start telling people about Jesus. And these were not Jewish people. They weren't even people who had converted to Judaism. They had never heard of Moses. They certainly weren't obeying the law. They weren't following the law of Moses. And when the Jewish believers, the followers of Jesus that had been Jews and keeping the law all of their lives, when they heard about what was going on and that these Gentiles were becoming followers of Jesus without also being followers of Moses, they got real concerned about that. They had never heard about that before. You see, for these newcomers to be considered God's people, just like the Jewish brothers and sisters when, who had spent all their lives knowing who God was, that just didn't seem right. It just didn't make sense to them that that could be okay. So they believed it was imperative that any new believers, Jew or Gentile, should have to obey the law of Moses just the way they had always done. They weren't being stubborn. They weren't being mean. They were simply trying to respect the will of God the way they had all their lives. And they weren't bashful. They weren't timid when it comes to telling Paul and Barnabas or anybody else how they felt. And that's where Acts 15 starts. Acts 15 verse 1, some men came down from Judea to Antioch And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, Paul and Barnabas understood that very, very differently. And and they they just weren't going to come to an agreement on this. So what they decided is Paul and Barnabas needed to go back to Jerusalem with these brothers And they needed to all go and talk to the apostles and the elders at the church in Jerusalem, the mother church. And that's what they do. Now, please understand, uh, Paul and Barnabas and these people were not going to agree. And it was really important 
that they, they come to agreement and so they could be one in Christ. They go down to the Jerusalem and they, they're meeting with the church there, the elders, the apostles, they welcome them warmly. They receive them and Paul and Barnabas and the other people, they start telling their stories about what God has been doing and, and the, the, the church, the leaders and the people in the church are thrilled. And then in verse five of Acts 15, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now, now before we get into what they're demanding, let's think about just for a minute who these people are. They are followers of Jesus, but it also says they are Pharisees. Those of us who are familiar with the gospel story remember when we hear the word Pharisee, we remember those people that Jesus was always butting heads with. They were always attacking and arguing with Jesus about all kinds of different things. We, we have a hard time even imagining that any of them would actually become followers of Jesus, but that's not true. It's obvious from this verse that they were following Jesus, but they were still Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were a group who were in many ways the most devout people in all of Israel. They went above and beyond what virtually anyone else did in respecting and following the will of God. That wasn't a bad thing. To the contrary, that kind of devotion to following God's will in many ways was to be admired. The problem is they weren't quite able to accept others who didn't do things the way they had always done them. And so they were saying to Paul and Barnabas, look, you guys have to require these people to do it just like we do it. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, we really can't do that because that's not what the gospel of God's grace is about that we've received through Jesus Christ. Now, please understand, Paul and Barnabas are in no way telling these brothers that they have to stop being Jews or even stop being Pharisees. They weren't suggesting that anything they were doing was wrong. It's not suggested here in Acts 15 or anywhere else in the New Testament. The things that they did and the way the Pharisees lived was done to honor God and give glory to him. There's nothing wrong with that. But when they started saying everybody else has to do it just like we do it, then Paul and Barnabas said, no, that's just not acceptable. Now, folks, honestly, there are a lot of things that just don't change much throughout history, you know? In virtually every church conflict, there is usually a very simple easy, neat, and tidy solution to whatever the problem is that's creating the conflict. The trouble is it's usually the wrong thing to do. It's the wrong solution. You see, most church arguments start with some people complaining about something and they make it clear that they're not going to be happy until everybody else is doing it the way they think it ought to be done. Everybody has to agree with them, or if you don't agree, you at least have to conform outwardly to what they say. 
That's what was happening here in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem church. And it's happened countless times since then throughout the centuries. Still happens today. Now, when that happens, the easiest way to solve the problem is to say, okay, we'll just say everybody has to do it the way those people think it ought to be done. And the problem would go away. There would be no controversy because you've issued a decree that everybody has to follow the way those people think it ought to be done. Problem with that is it doesn't respect people and it doesn't honor God. And that's the situation that the elders and the apostles in the Jerusalem church had to deal with. They had to decide if people are saved simply by the grace of God or if people are saved by the grace of God and doing everything right, according to what some people thought. And there is no question where they came out. Folks, this is a powerful picture of grace that we need to be sure to look at very carefully as we go through the study we're currently in. And interestingly, the three most significant leaders in the first century church all weigh in on this problem. The first to speak up is Peter. I know that's no surprise. In Acts 15, verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, that is a surprise that Peter waits until there's a lot of discussion before he starts talking, okay? But he did this time. Here's what he says. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God? By putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they Peter reminds them of the experience he had had several years earlier with a guy named Cornelius. Now, the last thing anybody could have accused Peter of being at that time was somebody crusading for the rights of non-Jewish believers, okay? I mean, that was the opposite of who Peter was. In fact, God gave him this vision of this, this, this sheet coming down with these unclean animals and it saying, take and eat. And Peter said, no way. I have never eaten anything like that, and I'm not about to start now. I am a good Jew. I am following the law and all of the, all of the codes that tell me what to eat and what not to eat. Then God told him to go see Cornelius, and when he did, he saw that the Holy Spirit had been given to them and realized that he had no business trying to reject what God was doing. And he is very clear to remind them that all of this was God's work, not his. He said, going to see those guys wasn't my idea. It was God's. And, and the Holy Spirit, I didn't give it to them. God did. And it wasn't me that purified their hearts. That was God. And God did all of that in spite of the fact that they weren't circumcised and they weren't following the law like we've always done. The only thing I can figure out Peter's saying, 
is that people aren't necessarily saved the way I thought they were and the way I was taught when I was growing up because God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. It isn't who your ancestors are and it isn't how well you keep the law. It isn't doing everything right when you go to church. It's trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ and God's grace. You know, sometimes people today feel like they're being challenged to rethink how people are saved. And if you feel that way, you got some pretty good company because God's been doing that ever since he did it with Peter in the first century. So Peter says, okay, here's, here's my experience with this whole thing, guys. When Peter gets through, Paul and Barnabas start. I mean, these are missionaries that have come back to the mother church, right? So they get their PowerPoint and their projector. Okay, they didn't have PowerPoint. They had a slide projector back then. Wait, this is the old, no. They told the stories about what God had been doing. They told them, look at, uh, where are we, verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. That's not hard to understand. When you hear about stuff God's doing, you get quiet, you pay attention. And when you hear about signs and wonders that God is doing, you really sit up and take notice. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop here. Now, question, why did Paul and Barnabas respond that way? I mean, I mean, Paul obviously is the most gifted, the most experienced, the most capable debater in the whole room. Why didn't he get up and, and give some eloquent argument about what was right? Or, or why didn't he unleash some blistering attack on these people that were suggesting something that wasn't true? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First, that kind of response doesn't accomplish much, folks. Button heads with people that see something completely different from you doesn't really get you anywhere with the body. And second, there was no more eloquent argument to be made than what he had seen the Spirit of God doing. You see, Paul is essentially saying, Paul and Barnabas are essentially saying, look, we were there. And the Spirit of God showed up and and enabled us to do all these miraculous signs and wonders among the Gentiles who were becoming believers. Explain that away if this isn't God's will. You see, there were some, some people that had a real legalistic view of things that were coming saying, hey, you can't do that. And Paul said, well, take it up with God. He's the one that's supporting this. He's the one that's confirming our word with wonders. Folks, the truth is there are any number of legalistic groups with approaches that can get people to follow their ways. Legalistic approaches can be very effective at pressuring people and coercing them to toe the line. But you're never going to see the mark of the Holy Spirit as an outgrowth of that. You're never going to see the fruit of the Spirit in people's lives who have been pressured and coerced to doing something according to the way somebody thinks it ought to be. Well, James, 
James is the most influential leader of all in the church there in Jerusalem in the first century. He takes his turn last. Look at verse 13. When they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will, he's quoting from Amos here. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. That's what Amos said. And then James says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James doesn't talk about his experience like Peter did. James doesn't talk about the the miraculous signs and wonders like Paul and Barnabas did. James just goes right back to the Word of God. James goes to Scripture. He quotes the prophet Amos who writes about this time that God is going to restore the, the reign of David in the new Israel and that will include all the nations God has called to belong to him. See, Amos and the other prophets knew God would restore the reign of Israel, but it wouldn't be a a physical, a political kingdom like David's. It would be a spiritual kingdom, and it would be a kingdom that all the nations were going to be brought into. You can look all through Amos or any of the other prophets for something that says, and they're all going to be circumcised and become Jewish, and you're not going to find it because it's not there, James says. They don't have to do that. And this isn't any change. This was God's plan from the very beginning. Remember last fall at the very beginning of the story when we were in Genesis chapter 12 and we read how how God had promised Abraham when he first called him. He said, I will make uh, of you a great nation and through you and your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Remember that? Well, that word nations is exactly the same word as the word Gentiles right here. All those non-Jewish people that God has always, always in his mercy and in his plan intended to belong to him. And they don't all become Jews. James says, look guys, I'm right here with Peter and Paul. We're saved by God's grace because of the cross of Jesus Christ, not because we keep on doing things just exactly like we did and our parents and and their parents and their parents before them did. That's not what really matters. We need to get back, James says, to the word of God and understand what it really says instead of just assuming the way we've always thought and the way we've always heard it is right and requiring everybody to do everything the same. Folks, whenever we have a situation where there are different ideas about how we should go forward, how we should do this or that or the other, we need to follow that pattern. We need to go back to the Word of God and say, what does it really say? Not what did I always think, what did I always understand? What does it really say here? That's what James is telling them. So in Acts 15, we're dealing with one of those church issues 
that are always going to come up when something different happens. You think some of the stuff that we wrestle with, that we find challenging is, is hard. It's nothing compared to what they were looking at. There's a whole new way of looking at what makes someone belong to God. And at the root of it, at the core, is that question. Are we saved simply by the grace of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ? Are we saved by God's grace through the cross if we get everything right? And Peter and Paul and James made it real clear which way it is. In Peter's words, we're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ just as they are. And we have no business telling people everybody's got to do it like we do. The question is, are we in the 21st century going to have the courage and the faith to respond to the same challenge the way that Peter and Paul and James and the elders and the apostles at Jerusalem did. They love the way that Scott and Sue Ellen share how they worked through that challenge in their relationship. Listen to what they have to say. We eventually ended up in a congregation up north where there were several people who were not the strict, you must do this, this, and this variety, and were able to begin having non-confrontational conversations about some of the things that were sticking points for us. I truly believe that it was God's grace extended to me to be part of a congregation that didn't go around preaching all rules all the time. It was just refreshing for me for people to be honest and come out and say, well, you know, I'm not really sure about that, rather than just having the book thrown at you all the time. It allowed you to talk about it. Right. And, just allowed And us. realize it's okay to have those questions. It's, there's nothing wrong with that that's completely natural. And ask the questions and answer them, you know, the best you can. You know, the people we were introduced to later in life are the people who, who helped us figure that out. Uh, I remember after coming to Greenville Oaks, one of the, f one of the favorite statements I ever heard uh, Keith gave in, in a sermon, and I, I don't even know if it was his, um, but he said, Jesus didn't come to earth and die so I could go to church on a Sunday morning. And I think for a long time, that's kind of how I looked at it, because that's what I had seen. Uh, unintentionally, I don't think anyone that I went to church with really thought that Jesus came and died so that they could go to church on a Sunday morning, but that's what I saw. Uh, and that was my interpretation of it, and that was my reality. Um, I think the key difference between answering that question intellectually and really understanding uh, what the grace of God means is the way we treat each other and the way we live our life and the examples that we are to each other. That's where, when I realized it wasn't about having an answer to a question. Some of the things that we had to strongly worded debates over, <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily changed what I believe with that, but I changed how I would handle that situation completely. 
completely. I understand now that, that the way I approached things then was just wrong. Just, it just was. You're, you're not going to win people over with that approach. Talk about things without fighting, without throwing scriptures at each other, without, you know. We were, we were able to talk about those issues the way you should be able to talk about them. Not in an anger, not with anger. Or trying, with to, or trying to prove a point. Or, you know. Stuff coming out of your mouth. That was the key. Yeah, that was the key. I could still hold the things that I held to be true in my heart mm -hmm. and that you could do the same thing. And it wasn't a battle mm -hmm. between us anymore. It was, I love you and I respect where you came from. And Yeah. It was those years um, that we spent, you know, getting to know one another and being able to talk about our faith in a non-confrontational manner and, and by grace that we realized uh, how wonderful the grace of God really is. When we're open to where God's leading us, we realize how wonderful His grace is. Thank you, Scott and Sue Ellen. You know what the irony is? We've been singing the truth for years, for generations. We sang it this morning. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. The question is, are we going to believe what we've always sung? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your incredible, amazing grace. Lord, forgive us when we fall into the self-deception that says it's about what we do or how we do it. Never may we take lightly what you call us to do or to be. But, oh, Lord, may we never confuse our response of faith for what it is that saves us, for your incredible grace. Lord, we ask that you cleanse us by the water and the blood that flowed from his side and make us aware that is what makes us your children. And as a result of that, may we respond in joy and in, in grace to one another. Let us do that because of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. And amen.